I'm Eric Sorensen, and you're listening to The West Block. More than 6 million Ukrainians have fled the country since Russia's invasion. More than 200,000 have applied to come to Canada. Thousands more are still waiting for visa approval. Joining us now is Sean Fraser, the Minister of Immigration, Refugees and Citizenship. Uh, Minister, thanks for joining us. You were in Poland and you could see what that country is dealing with, millions of Ukrainians. Does that up the pressure on this country to do better, to speed up the process here? Um, first of all, let me say uh, thanks for having me and, and thanks to our, our uh, partners in, in Poland for their extraordinary generosity to have been there and seen firsthand the impact of having uh, millions of people cross the border in a very short period of time uh, is a really eye-opening experience. Uh, one of the things that I was very encouraged by is there is a really good awareness of the Canadian program amongst Ukrainians who've made their way to Poland. And we were there to open an expanded biometrics collection facility, uh, at least in part. And uh, to have seen the operations firsthand gives me great faith that things are running smoothly. Uh, people are getting in and out in 10 minutes. Uh, we're seeing that we have the capacity to process more than the demand that we're seeing. Uh, but the message from uh, those on the ground in Poland was one of gratitude to say thank you, Canada, for stepping up to match the ambition of many European nations to take such a large number of people. You know, we saw a plane load uh, this week in Newfoundland and Labrador. Can we expect to see more Ukrainians coming more quickly? Because it seems a little uneven so far. Uh, yeah, and look, thank you to Newfoundland and Labrador. They've uh, sent a team over. They've got a, a plane that arrived recently. Uh, there's going to be three chartered flights land in the next couple of weeks, May 23rd in Winnipeg, May 29th in Montreal, and June 2nd in my home province of Nova Scotia at the Halifax Stanfield International Airport. Uh, but the charter flights are only going to be one part of the story. Uh, I should point out, since the beginning of the year, we now have approximately 25,000 Ukrainians have actually arrived in Canada. Uh, but for those who want to avail themselves of an opportunity to travel to Canada, we've also uh, worked with Air Canada and the Shapiro Foundation, who've made extraordinarily generous donations uh, that's going to cover the cost of travel for at least 10,000 Ukrainians who are seeking to come to Canada. The advantage to this particular uh, strategy is that whether you happen to be in Warsaw or not, uh, or if you've uh, instead been approved to come to Canada and traveled throughout Europe elsewhere, you're still going to have access to be able to book flights on widely available uh, commercial airlines, which travel more frequently and have more flexibility in terms of where you may be leaving from and where you may be destined to. So the combination of government finance charters uh, alongside this incredibly generous donation we're working to help implement uh, to give people flexible access to travel on commercial airlines uh, will uh, certainly see thousands of people arrive in, in the weeks and months ahead. Can you just help us a little bit with the numbers to get a sense of how many Ukrainians do you think will come, how many will be temporary, and, and just ballpark even, how many might settle here permanently? You know, it's it's hard to say because there's decisions that have not yet been uh, not yet been taken. Uh, we've now seen more than 100,000 approvals. Uh, we've seen about 200,000 uh, applications, and uh, we've seen 25,000 or so, a little bit more since the uh, beginning of the year, have actually arrived in Canada. Uh, one of the reasons that I say it's a little bit difficult to predict is when I uh, went through a, a processing facility for Ukrainian refugees in Belgium during my recent visit. 
they had prepared for 200,000 uh, and only 30,000 have come. Uh, we're hearing not just for people who are thinking about coming to Canada, but think for people who are thinking about going to countries across Europe, uh, that people are really reticent to go too far from the western border of Ukraine because they have hope and optimism that returning home in the short term is going to be an opportunity for them. Those who have traveled further west are actually reluctant to travel too far from major transportation hubs because getting home is going to be that much more difficult. So it's hard to predict with precision how many people who've been approved to come to Canada will in fact uh, decide to come to Canada. And until we don't know that number, it'll be difficult to understand how many will want to resettle permanently. We don't want to uh, necessarily create a special program that's going to uh, encourage people to uh, stay forever that may not have a family connection because Ukraine is saying we want you to provide safe haven to our people, uh, but we're going to need them back for the reconstruction phase of our country when we win this war. Uh, so we're going to continue to provide safe haven for people. They'll be able to apply for permanent residency should they wish, uh, but we'll have a better sense of the numbers as the data reveals itself in real time. Well, that's a good point about that Ukraine will want them back because they'll need the help of all Ukrainians uh, when the time comes. Um, I want to ask you about the other major immigration operation, the, the one involving Afghans. Things are getting harder for people there uh, because of the Taliban. Uh, how would you describe the level of frustration for those that are trying to come to this country? Because you've seen, um, you know, those that are on their computers saying, I can't reach the department, but I can't get my papers approved. It's taking too long. And every day that goes by is a big worry for them that they'll ever get out. Yeah, the situation in Afghanistan is absolutely heartbreaking. Uh, when you see the danger that people face and the persecution uh, at the hands of the Taliban, that is a very real uh, fact of life for many Afghans. Uh, it, it, it is an extraordinary challenge to watch. But at the same time, it gives me faith that having uh, made one of the most substantial contributions of any nation in the world with a commitment to resettle 40,000 Afghan refugees demonstrates to me that uh, we, are, we are on the right track. I'm very encouraged by the recent uptick in arrivals in Canada. In the month of April, we've seen 2,500 Afghan uh, refugees arrive in Canada. Uh, on Wednesday, we had almost 300 arrive in Canada. Today, there was a flight with more than 300 arriving as well, uh, disproportionately people who served alongside Canada during our mission in Afghanistan. But it's important that we put this in context too. Our department has been contacted by more than uh, a million people who've expressed interest in coming to Canada. Um, the sad reality is that not everyone who hopes to come to Canada will be a part of the program, but we should still take uh, comfort knowing that we're doing as much on a per capita basis as any country in the world. And with very limited uh, exceptions, uh, we're doing more than just about everyone uh, when it comes to resettling some of the world's most vulnerable. Our commitment to resettle those who've made a, a contribution to Canada and to resettle 40,000 Afghan refugees has not wavered. Uh, the challenges on the ground when the Taliban, a listed terrorist entity in Canadian law has seized control are unlike any other mission that we've ever been engaged with. But despite the magnitude of the challenge, we'll continue to work with partners in the region and on the ground to move people as quickly and safely as possible until we reach our goal of resettling at least 40,000 Afghan refugees in Canada. Well, you have uh, Afghans and Ukrainians and all of that on top of the usual uh, heavy load for immigration in this country. Uh, thank you for joining us today, Sean Fraser. It's a real pleasure. Thank you for having me. Whether it's filling up your tank with gas or buying groceries, the cost of living is going up. Inflation, unlike anything we've seen in 30 years, is the culprit. 
When we buy a basket of goods and services for, say, $100, the Bank of Canada's inflation target of 2% would see the average cost go up to $102 the following year. A little bit of inflation can be a good thing to boost the economy, get consumers spending now, not later. In the early 1990s, after years of high inflation, the bank set that 2% target and through ups and downs has kept pretty close to that until we started coming out of the pandemic. Prices have spiked and inflation is now up to 6.7%. The question, where is inflation headed next? To answer that question and to get a better understanding of the role of the central bank, I'm joined by former parliamentary budget officer Kevin Page. He's the president and CEO of the Institute of Fiscal Studies and Democracy at the University of Ottawa. Well, Kevin, the next monthly update on inflation comes out this week. <laughs> Where do you think inflation is headed next? Yeah, I think it's probably going to be in a similar range. And we saw that in the United States last week, where the numbers sort of stayed um, you know, on a month-to-month -month basis in terms of the, you know, this increase in the rate of inflation at a similar rate. So probably somewhere in that kind of 6 to 7% range, which is an enormously high number. A lot of Canadians are really being caught by this and wonder, like, how did we get here? It, you know, what, what, what's your explanation for that in, in a nutshell? Yeah, so uh, two historic events. You know, one in 2020, the global pandemic, and then the other more recent story is the Russia-Ukraine war, and which had enormous impacts on the world economy, which created enormous supply disruptions. And I think, you know, a lot of people are taken by surprise just how strong the economy came back after the kind of COVID-related shutdowns, which really boosted demand and boosted inflationary pressure. Is there a prescription that you can see for how we can, you know, if it's going to downturn and bring us back towards that 2% target, how do we do that? Yeah, so, I mean, policymakers, those people at the Bank of Canada, um, I think, you know, the Minister of Finance as well, she plays a role in terms of setting expectations, really try to anchor expectations that, yes, this is a short-term phenomenon. And uh, so a lot of people at the collective bargaining right now, there are companies setting prices and they see input prices going up that just, you know, to kind of try to anchor prices back in that kind of one to three percent, you know, increase in the in, in the rate of inflation, or the rate of inflation, the CPI. So is there a policy prescription? Yeah, I think um, normalization of fiscal and monetary policy, like reducing these large uh, federal deficits. And uh, I think increases in policy rates at the Bank of Canada, which will have, uh, unfortunately, slow down the economy somewhat, but reduce demand pressure. Can, uh, can higher interest rates work? And, and some people would say, you know, they need to do more of that. Others are sitting at home saying, I carry a lot of debt and I do not want higher interest rates. Yeah, I mean, certainly central bankers around the world and certainly in Canada know that there's an enormous amount of household debt and, and corporate debt and government debt is because of, in part, um, a government debt anyways because of the pandemic. So they're, they're mindful of that. So, but, you know, right now the policy rate sitting at 1%. Going into COVID, it was you know, roughly around 2%. So uh, we're dealing with inflation rates much higher than the, government, the Bank of Canada's targets. So that, you know, we should expect increases of policy rates, mortgage rates, consumer lending rates of at least 1% to 2 percentage points over the next year, year and a half. The Bank of Canada now is in the spotlight over this. Is this a problem for the bank to solve? Well, I think it's, um, this is, again, we find ourselves in, an, you know, in these historic times and it's, there's a lot of, there was enormous global in, uh, instability, uncertainty. So, you know, mon it's really important that monetary pol policy plays a key role to try to stabilize the economy at this point in time. They did it in 2008 after the global financial crisis and now they're doing it now with these sort of two shocks. 
the pandemic and the you know and the, the Russia-Ukraine war. So yeah, they're they're the the institution in, in countries, the central bank that responsible that the lead responsibility for for targeting, for dealing with the rate of inflation to try to stabilize it. The uh, the perceived front runner in the conservative leadership race is Pierre Polyev. Um, he would fire the Bank of Canada uh, governor Tim Macklin. Uh, and replace him with somebody, I guess, that he feels would return to lower inflation as a mandate. I don't want to drag you into a political uh, con conversation, but but can domestic politics undermine confidence in the bank? Yeah, I think I think it's important that we have strong institutions, and um, I think that we've gotten used over the past um, three decades that having an independent central bank that is, you know, independence making decisions on these policy interest rates that is divorced from. Uh, the political environment. I think we want to maintain that. So I think um, it would be quite a shockwave, a global financial shockwave, to ha to have uh, a government literally remove a central banker who's by by all intents seems to be doing uh, doing a fine job, but in doing a very difficult job. How, how is the central bank of Canada uh, regarded internationally? Yeah, I think it's uh, it's a strong institution. Um, people like me that read those monetary policy reports um, see it as you know a very transparent document. It's certainly staffed with great professionals. Uh, Mr. Macklin is a highly regarded central banker, and he comes on the heels of other highly regarded central bankers in Canada, including Stephen Paulus, uh, including Mr. Carney, including David Dodge, and many others. Um, so it's a strong institution. I think. It's just an oversimplification. I think it's a very simplification to assume that if we just change the leader, that somehow this sort of global environment and it, inflation truly is a global issue, just some, somehow disappears. Well, and to, for that matter, can the bank or the Canadian government on their own bring inflation down in this country? No, no. This is um, the nature of these shocks. Again, if. Um, I'm sure Mr. Polyev and others, if they just like pick up the latest version of the Economist magazine and they flip to the back pages, they will see that, uh, and they look at these economic indicators: inflation uh, rising well above eight percent in the United States, on average above seven percent increases in Europe. So Canada is actually we're sitting on the low end of that sort of distribution. There are a few other countries that have lower inflation rates. Um, this is a global phenomenon. Uh, these are, you know, a lot of it is supply related, and it's just it's because of those very strong supports that went in 2020 uh, to, to maintain, you know, to help during the lockdown. I think there's just um, the economy's come back really fast, and yeah, eventually markets will adjust. These policy rates we're going to adjust to, they're going to go up. It'll slow the economy a little bit. So yeah, I think over the next couple of years we could see inflation back, you know, maybe in the three percent range. That's uh, that's really helpful. Thanks for coming in. It's good to be with you. The Conservative Party's English language debate took on a unique format with rapid answers and personal interests. But the six leadership contenders still threw some punches. Joining us now, former Conservative cabinet ministers Lisa Raitt and Monty Solberg. Well, the format debate was debated uh, well enough, but, but on the substance, uh, Lisa, what do you come away with from that debate? Like, were there winners moving ahead in terms of gathering up votes on that first, second, third ballot? I think definitely some minds were made up, but I also think that there is a lot of non-conservative membership holders out there. And I think they were watching to see what kind of an alternative that the conservatives were thinking of putting forward to go up against the, the liberal government. Mm -hmm. Because I have had a number of people ask me about who I thought did well and and what did I think of it? The fact that they stuck with the debate for as long as they did, I think is a testament to the fact that it was a bit of a welcoming 
for uh, for non-conservatives in a way because you got to know the candidates as well as getting to know their positions on policy. So no clear winner for me, uh, except for the fact that you got to know the individuals a little bit more. And I thought, I like those questions. Monty, it's, uh, it's the only English debate. Uh, do you see momentum for anyone coming out of it? Well, I thought the, some of the sort of uh, secondary candidates, if I can call them that, uh, had a chance to introduce themselves their first time on a national stage to really lay out who they are and what they believe in. They probably gained the most from, from the uh, discussion. Jean Charest had a, an opportunity to sort of reintroduce himself to Canadians. Of course, he's uh, been around for a long time. And I thought he did you know, quite a good job. Uh, Pierre Polyev certainly made himself uh, clear on a few issues and uh, and had a chance to lay out uh, his primary concerns around the around the economy and those kinds of things. Uh, an unfortunate, I would say, strategy error uh, in uh, not leaving himself enough time to respond or enough uh, opportunities to yeah. respond in the last almost half hour of the debate, which was unfortunate because it really got on to some of the issues he cares about the most. Well, let me get on to one of those. Uh, you know, our previous guest, Kevin Page, uh, spoke to the importance of preserving the independence of the Bank of Canada. Um, Pierre Polyev says he would fire the governor, Tiff, Tiff Macklem. Does that help him win the leadership, Lisa? I don't think so. Um, I know that when Doug Ford ran for premier in 2018, they made a lot of noise around the fact that the CEO of the OPG was making $6 million a year and how atrocious it was because people were paying high prices in electricity. That was the contrast. And it was successful. I, I don't think going after the governor of the Bank of Canada is going to be extremely successful either outside or inside of our party. And my proof point is I have lots of, of mid-20s, early 30s folks who are interested in our fiscal party because they're not happy with what's happening in the government. And then they stop short and say, but this Bank of Canada thing, you know, I, uh, I don't get it. And that's unfortunate. Monty, you came in uh, with Reform Party on a high in 1993, uh, but it took 12 to 13 years for conservatives to take back government from the liberals. Is the, could the party be defining itself too narrowly for the next election again? Well, I think the op the opportunity here is to remind people why they want to fire Justin Trudeau. Uh, he's the one that I think most Canadians mm -hmm. are are concerned about. Uh, my concern is that uh, you know Pierre is is in a strong position. He's probably leading overall, but he needs to be concerned about second place votes or second choice votes. I don't think he won any second choice votes by promising to fire somebody that. Uh, not one in a hundred people could pick out in a in a lineup. So, uh, you know, I think it's a bit misplaced. The other danger for Pierre is, you know, some people have said, he, you know, he's showing that he's too risky. As a young guy, uh, he carries the burden of proving that he's not going to be imprudent and not do rash things. This doesn't help him. Lisa, uh, Monty talked a little about uh, Jean Charest reintroducing himself. Is his progressive conservatism that we're more familiar with from a previous generation, is that out of step with today's conservatism? Well, you know what's never out of step? Leadership. And I think when you can enunciate why you're seeking the leadership and why you want to come back to help Canada and why Canada is so important, that that transcends whatever flavor of politics you want to ascribe to a person's time in a certain office. And I thought he did that very well. He made the point both off the top and then in his clothes, which I thought was exceptionally strong. 
as to why he is running, what it means, what the stakes are for Canadians, and why he should be the leader. Can I just ask you to take a moment, though, to yeah. talk about something else? Uh, we saw Jagmeet Singh uh, in the last week uh, was accosted by protesters. It was vulgar. Um, does this trend of in-your-face with public figures worry you, Lisa? Always. I mean, nobody wants to see anybody to be accosted, and it's horrifying, and it, it does happen in all parties, and it happens in various periods of time. But I think what what's being tapped into now is just this great anger there is against the current government in place and now the NDP because of the fact that they're, they are supporting this government until 2025. And that's manifesting itself. I have not seen this level of anger towards a party uh, in my political life. I will be truthful about that. Even when everybody was mad at my government, the Stephen Harper government, it didn't go to this level. And as a result, we do have to take a look at what's caused it, why is it happening, and quite frankly, how are we going to protect our political leaders? Marty, last thought to you. Well, you know, I've seen this before. Uh, Preston Manning experienced a lot of hate and vitriol going on to university campuses uh, back in the day. But this is really bad. I agree. And I think part of the responsibility of anybody aspiring to leadership these days is to make sure to be responsible with, with their rhetoric and, uh, you know, not show any kind of encouragement uh, to, you know, that kind of level of animus. Um, uh, we should see our opponents as opponents, not enemies. And I think that should be made clear from the, you know, from the bully pulpit that political leaders have. All right. Um, uh, that's a good final thought. Uh, Monty Solberg, thank you. And Lisa, thank you. That's our show for today. I'm Eric Sorensen. Thanks for listening to The West Block.